there's always, I, I feel like we always, we know a lot about Paul after his conversion. We know that conversion moment after, but we don't often spend a lot of time thinking about what came before that. Um, we know a couple of details, but we just don't spend the time to stop and think about what was driving Paul. What was he doing? What was he all about? Um, so today we want to talk a little bit about Saul and learn his story, learn what might have been driving him. And uh, it might seem a little bit counterintuitive, but if you followed all of our lessons up to this over the past few years, it won't seem unusual that since we're talking about Paul a lot today, most of my scripture will be in the book of Exodus. <laughs> um, but that's the story that we have today. Um, I found there's just a lesson and a theme that I really saw here that I felt like I needed to share. So Saul was born of Jewish parents in the city of Tarsus. Um, you can see it just up at the corner of the Mediterranean Sea there. Um, it was the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia. It was in southern Turkey, pretty close to the coast. It's actually a trade and commerce town because you can navigate the waters all the way up to Tarsus. Um, Saul is his birth name. It's his Jewish name. Like a lot of Jewish people in the Roman Empire, he used a Greek name, a different name that we know of Paul, out in the secular world. But when he came home to his family, everyone would call him Saul. So that's how we know him as Paul, because we're the Gentiles. We're the Greeks that he went out to minister to, and he adopted the name Paul in all of those missions. His family were actually Roman citizens of the empire, which is a very, very rare privilege in the Roman Empire. His family probably earned that right and that privilege by possessing enough wealth to purchase it from the Roman Empire or through some kind of exceptional service to Rome that they were granted that right. This privilege gave him immense access to advancement in Roman society um, and even the freedom of movement that we saw later. And we know later in his story, he called upon this privilege to earn a trial before Caesar, which was the source of a lot of his letters, uh, the period later in his life that we got to experience. Um, so he wasn't afraid to call on it and use it as he needed. Sometime during his youth, he apparently showed some promise in studying the scriptures, in learning the Torah. Um, and he was actually sent to Jerusalem to study the law and the traditions of his fathers. He got to train under what was a well-known rabbi, a famous rabbi named Gamaliel, and he became a member of the Pharisee sect. Now, over the, that period of time, he also learned to trade, which was uh, tent making, leather working. Um, it's possible that it was uh, tent making specifically using the black goat hair from the goats that were grown in Tarsus as a plentiful resource. Um, by learning this trade, he could support himself wherever his zeal to learn the law and support Judaic uh, uh, traditionalism was able to take him. So speaking of the Pharisees, the word Pharisee means to separate. So the order of the Pharisees at the time of Paul's life were the most powerful sect in Jewish religious society, which really also meant social society, really all of Jewish society. This order saw its primary purpose as meticulously preserving every detail of the Mosaic law. So every command that was given to us through the Torah the Pharisees saw it as their mission to ensure that they practice it, that they understood it, and that they made sure everyone else was practicing it too. It was incredibly important to them. So if we think about Paul, once he's, he's become a Pharisee, he's in young adulthood, 
Um, he's establishing his place as a learned scholar. As we know from his later letters, he had a very, very agile mind. He was able to call back his lessons and learning from all of the Old Testament scriptures. He understood the whole picture of how those things fit together. Um, so just think about him as a Pharisee in Jerusalem. He's surrounded by people from many different religions and sources of origin, many different countries that didn't follow the law. Even the Jewish people around him didn't really follow it very well. Even, even in his group, the religious authority that the Pharisees had was restricted because they had a puppet king who was just a figurehead, who's appointed by the Roman Empire, and they have to do whatever the Roman Empire wishes. So when he looks back across the history of the Jewish nation, of Israel, he sees time and again kings appointed, kings failing, exiles, his people ripped away from their homeland, then brought back, then ripped away again, then brought back, the law lost, the law recovered, God in physical presence in the cloud, in the tabernacle, in the temple, but then gone and silent for hundreds of years. And so he's living in this place where it feels like God's not there anymore. The only thing, the only connection that they still have to God is this law. They have the Torah. And so Paul spends every day pouring over the words, every day watching and making sure that it's followed, every day hoping that today's the day that we can finally regain what we have. But seeing that everything could be lost in a moment, we're sitting in a place where exile could happen again. This little bit, this very small remnant of what the Israel, the, the Israel nation is supposed to be could, could be gone tomorrow. They know that. The law at this point... I think for the Pharisees felt like the only thing keeping Judaism alive, keeping the Jewish nation alive, even in a lot of ways, keeping the Jews alive. So let's think about the law. It's not, especially in Paul's story, we kind of look at the law as a negative. It's a bad thing. It's been misused. It's been used to beat and bludgeon. Um, but there obviously was a very real purpose for the law. So I want us to think a little bit about that and just meditate on why the law was given. This law that the Pharisees were following and upholding. Some of the purposes that the law God, uh, God gave to Israel had were so that he could reveal his character and provide his people with a means to be like him. His law showed who he was and gave them some tools to behave like him. It also identified his people as being different or set apart. Some of the ritual laws, very specifically to identify them as a nation that was different than the nations surrounding them as they moved into these pagan, pagan regions. And also through their social arrangements. In an era when, when the most powerful ruled, whenever the powerful could take anything they wanted, a lot of the Ju uh, Judaic law was built around establishing a structure where justice was served, where the poor and the weak were protected. And some of the law was also to provide the best life for his people, just through the wisdom of God to know this, if you practice this, you will have a good life. It's one that allowed them to receive all that he wanted for them. I think if we look at the law, a lot of all of these points are reflected in the law to observe the Sabbath that he gave the Jewish people. 
God rested in creation, so the Hebrews were supposed to rest. All the other nations lived every day of the week doing the same thing, but the Hebrews were, you could identify them Friday night to Saturday night, they stepped aside and they weren't at work. They weren't doing the same things. They were different. They were resting and they were worshiping. So while a Canaanite or a Moabite is toiling and working to survive, the Hebrews actually stepped aside and breathed in the presence of God and meditated on his word and and stepped aside from work for even just one day. They could feel like they were back at that eternal Sabbath at the beginning of the creation story um, for Adam and Eve on day eight, the seven and on. But uh, there was also another reason for the law or the whole Torah. Picture it all together. It's not just a law book or a rule book or principle book. Um, it's also a narrative account. It tells the story of how the law came into being, how the law inter- how people interacted with the law, how God through the law interacted with them. And uh, it tells us about Israel's relationship with God and the world around Israel. A key point, a key purpose is to demonstrate that men could not follow this law, or at the very least that they would not do it. Um, so when we close today, we'll watch a video about the law that kind of shows us that tempo of the law and breaking the law and more laws, um, just showing that we never quite get there. But the law the law's purpose being given by God is a good thing, is an amazing thing. David meditated on it and celebrated. He said he delighted in the law. Um, we hear the words that his word is a lamp to my feet. It's a guidance. It's, it's a principle. Um, so the law is a good thing. But let's think about the law from a little bit of a different perspective here. Um, so I think a lot of the negative outcomes that we see from practicing the law, or from pursuing the law. And so we see these Pharisees going after every little detail of the law or the tradition that they've established. I think a lot of times, if I picture Paul and his uh, some of his Pharisees in this moment, those negative outcomes are from practicing the law from a heart of fear. So let's read Exodus 19 to kind of feel the law from that perspective. So I just want to picture us all the way back Um, Set the stage here and just listen to this and see if you can feel what I'm talking about. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. 
But sure, they are ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up to the mountain. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship, and they washed their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day, and until then abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. Then the Lord told Moses, go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me, mark off a boundary all around the mountain and set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. So if I am a member of the Israel nation, my, I grew up on the shores of the river in Egypt, working every day, making bricks, gathering straw, gathering mud. I don't really know the brick making process too well. Every day, slaving and toiling. My parents grew up the same way. My grandparents grew up the same way. My great-grandparents grew up the same way. For hundreds of years, we've lived here in huts, hovels, second, third-class citizens of Egypt, abused, enslaved. But I have my family. I have my house. There's Pharaoh, who's God. Now, if, if enough of our faith and tradition is passed through my family, I might know It's not really a God, but he's more powerful than any God I've witnessed. Pharaoh tells us to work, tells us when not to work, beats us or kills us if we don't work or for any reason he desires. But but he's over there. I know him. He's a man. I've never seen him, but he's a person. He's He's enthroned. He has his palace. He tells his generals. He tells his guards. He tells them to do things, and they do things. They're people. I can see them. I can physically see them. I can understand that. They, they have a lot of gods. They have Ra, Osiris, lots of other gods, but they're gold idols. They're made of stone. They're made of wood. I've never seen them actually do anything. I understand that. I get that. Now, this Moses comes into our place and gets us all fired up and excited to be free, even though we really don't know what that means. And so we leave. But before we leave, we, we, see, we see him transform objects right before our eyes. We see for weeks, it seems, the, 
all of these things happened that we'd never seen before. Moses says his God, our God, darkened the sky and dropped hail that broke and smashed and killed. He Livestock died. There were swarms of creatures that killed the crops. There were boils all over the Egyptians. There was darkness that we weren't affected by, but all of the elder children in Egypt died. I mean, I know, I know Pharaoh, Pharaoh killed our oldest sons, but, but he sent guards with swords or he threw them in the river. Like I can see that. I can understand that. This, we were told to put blood around our door and stay inside and it happened, but I don't understand what it was. And it was terrifying. Did I get the blood right? Was it the right blood? Was the door right? Were we going to be safe? And the morning came and it was okay. Our children were all okay, but, but the death that filled Egypt. And now we left and we got trapped against the sea and we saw this force, I guess this God, our God, take the largest body of water I had, could have ever imagined and pushed it aside so we could walk through. Then when we got to the other side, the water collapsed back and the Egyptian army died. We could hear them screaming as the water crashed in. It was, it was terrifying. I'd never even seen water that immense to imagine being trapped in it and drowned in it. So we're free though. All of this, I guess, it was good. Now we're free. You know, Egypt killed our sons. Their sons are dead. They threatened us. We escaped. It's good. But now we're out in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. And uh, now Moses tells us that you know, he goes up on the high place to see, to see our God, his God, our God, I guess. And that makes sense. But then he tells us all these rules. Like, Don't touch the mountain. Don't get close to the boundary. You'll die. And he keeps telling us that. And now Moses ascends up to this mountain. The earth shakes. There's lightning. There's thunder. There's, there's a cloud. And we're sitting down here at the base, realizing very clearly, we are all going to die. <laughs> you know, he's probably dead right now. And we're sitting down at the base of this mountain, waiting to die. So God, while Moses is up there, gives him the law, and it has the purposes that we talked about. But for someone who doesn't know God, sitting in fear, the law becomes something very different. Really, I mean, that's almost one of the first laws. The first laws could be debated when they're given the directions on the Passover, on how to practice it as they get ready to leave. But then here's another law. Don't get close to the mountain. We made these boundaries. And even, even that command... When the ram's horn sounds, you can go up. Okay, you go first, Bob. <laughs> I just want to make sure that was that the wait, but the ram's horn keeps sounding, but he also said not to go up. When are we supposed to go up? Um, I'm just going to back up a little bit. I'll go stand in the back. I'll, be, I'll, I'll guard all of our stuff while you guys go up the mountain. So the law here doesn't feel restful. It feels like they're coming from a place of fear because God is so different. God is so holy. So they built the boundary around, in a way, the law kind of can become used a little bit as a fence to protect them. Don't cross this line so that you're safe. So the difference in that moment, they could have sat down. If they had known God, they could have sat down at the base of that mountain and rested and waited 
for the revelations that were about to come. Uh, Jesus actually talks about, uh, in Matthew 5, we'll read a little bit of it later, um, when he's confronted by the Pharisees, and he tells them that he's the Lord of the Sabbath at one point. He tells them the Sabbath is made to serve us. The law is here to serve us. It's not our master. It's not our commander. The law is for us. It's a tool. It's something God gifted us. Um, and when Jesus has that moment, it's interesting when he refers to being the fulfillment of the law and how he's, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, there, there's a writer, R.T. France, who saw a really interesting con- contrast here. All of the rabbis before Jesus would interpret and expound the Torah, and then they would make what they claim, what they believe was the most accurate interpretation or understanding of it, but they would always anchor their opinion back to saying, I have the most accurate um, understanding of the Torah. So they're always anchoring back, even from all different points, they're, they're pointing back to the Torah. But Jesus considered himself as the fixed point of reference. And he was the point of reference by which the Torah was proven because he fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law. The law itself had validity because of Jesus. So let's uh, let's go on. While um, yeah, well, let me let me finish the story we, uh, because we won't read it. But you know you know what happened at the base of the mountain. They're sitting there waiting, waiting for Moses to come down. Pretty sure he's gonna he's dead. Pretty sure we're gonna die. He let us out here. Now if he went up there and his God killed him. What's going to happen to us? We're just in the wilderness. We have no. We can't go back to Egypt now. Um, we're just going to die out here. And so, go to Aaron and say, Aaron, this is all great. It's a really powerful God that your brother Moses serves. But could you maybe help us make God that we understand? Could we? I can give you my bracelet that I was able to bring with me. Can we just melt this all together? You can make us a God that we can worship, we can see it and touch it, but it can't see and touch us. That sounds a lot more approachable. I think we can manage that. And, that, and as you know the story, that's exactly what happened. But I can I see a little bit where they're coming from, that being approached, uh, presented with God's holiness and otherness, just being struck with terror and fear. And it can certainly be that way if you don't know him. But let's read what happens. Uh, I just want to... Go through these first commandments that Moses received. These are really moral commandments. We call them the Ten Commandments. Um, they're some of the most principal ones. So I'm going to read them in Exodus 20. As we do this, I just want you to imagine that we're in an arena with a thousand followers of Jesus. Believers who testify that they've been redeemed, that they've accepted his gift of salvation, and they're living for him. And I want us to go through these Ten Commandments and picture, if I ask every all thousand believers here, please put your hands up and then put your hand down whenever we read one of the commandments God gave Moses that you have not upheld since you've been a believer. And just picture in your mind how many hands remain up and at what point these hands are coming down. Uh, so God... Get, gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. 
I lay the sins of their parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Look around the arena. Okay. I've never chiseled a god out of stone or gold or wood. Or I've never chiseled anything out of stone or gold or wood. So... I can keep my hand up in this arena. This is great. Everything's going great. Probably a thousand people's hands are still up. <laughs> um, so we'll move on. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Now there's a lot of discussion about exactly what it means in the King James. You don't take the Lord's name in vain. Let's, let's use the most generous interpretation and say it just means, you know, swearing to things that God didn't command you to swear to. Maybe claiming he sent you on on a mission that he didn't, uh, maybe using his name to commit, uh, you know, a war or genocide or something. Let's say, let's use the very most generous example and look around and say, okay, probably just about everybody's hands can stay up for this one. All right. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners that are living among you. For six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. No, you know, we're not Jewish people. We discuss the law. The Jewish law was given to Jews. We're not necessarily tasked with upholding it, but even here, a lot of us probably grew up in faith traditions that treated the Sabbath as a practice and a law. Um, so if you look around, well, I guess these thousand believers would be in an arena on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Were there parking attendants? Is concessions open? Because I feel like that probably um, very specific instructions here, not even to have your servants making you dinner on the Sabbath. So um, probably most people in the arena would have to drop their hands at that point. But if not, if we'll be generous and say, okay, maybe, you know, we'll be generous. Maybe not all of them come down. Honor your father and mother. Then you'll live a long and full life in the land the Lord your God has given you. Even as believers, we always honored our father and mother. Whether or not they're right or wrong, we treated them properly. If we listened to them, as we have we heeded their counsel. You must not murder. Oh, that's great. That's an easy one. Good. Yeah, almost everyone's good with that one. Not killing people. You must not commit adultery. Well, even in even in the church, that's going to bring some hands down. You must not steal. Okay, feels I was that's probably better. Most most of us maybe aren't, but. Um, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servants, anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So even if, even if with all the generous interpretation, my guess is that those thousand people, by the time we hit the last commandment, yeah, my hands probably come down there. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you. And so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. Yeah. We will we'll die. That's, it's okay, Moses. I get it. You're trying to be nice to us, but no, we're going to die. Um, but here, let's read, let's read Deuteronomy 30, uh, 6 through 10. So we just went through the Ten Commandments. 
felt like, okay, have kind of a good picture. Um, that's actually, those are the easy commandments. The ones I read are actually the easy ones. <laughs> um, it gets a lot harder. So Deuteronomy 36 through 10, Moses recognized they could not fulfill the law in their current state. The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him and with all your heart and soul so you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate and persecute you. Then you will again obey the Lord and keep all his commandments that I'm giving you today. The Lord your God will then make you successful in everything you do. He will give you many children and numerous livestock. And he'll cause your fields to produce abundant harvest for the Lord again. Will again delight in being good to you as he was to your ancestors. The Lord your God will delight in you if you obey his voice and keep the commandments and decrees written in this book of instruction. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Moses recognized that it wasn't going to be enough. That they couldn't, these were the easy list of commandments, but they couldn't even keep those up. Um, let's read Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus is asked. Um, let's see, this is that's a different one. Um, but yeah, so Jesus is talking about one of these commandments specifically. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, those commandments, even the ones that seemed easy for us, don't seem quite so easy. So Jesus is saying, it's not enough to not murder someone. That's easy. Just don't murder someone. You know, that seems pretty easy for most people. But don't, don't hate someone. Don't be angry with someone. Don't wish that you could harm someone or that harm would come to someone. Suddenly, nobody's hands are up. And does that does Jesus' interpretation here, the implication seems to be that this is going to apply to all the commandments. Um, so now we go back through. Jesus at another point tells us, you, know, you must not commit adultery. That means you can't even lust after someone. Um, you can't wish you could take something from someone. It feels like that, that would meet the threshold of stealing. Um, even if you're completely observant of the Sabbath day, do you spend it in worship and communion or rest with God? Or are you thinking about the week ahead? Are you not truly setting it aside in your heart? So that's what I mean when I say the Ten Commandments weren't even really the hard commandments. Um, because Jesus opened up the reality. Him fulfilling the law wasn't concluding it and putting a bullet point on it and it's all over. He was saying, hey, Pharisees, you don't even understand the law. To people who've spent their life upholding the law and studying every detail of it and writing and, and teaching about it, Jesus looked them in the face and said, yeah, but you don't actually know the law. You might know that you're supposed to do these things. You're not supposed to take up your sword and run someone through. Yeah, but I'm, that's not even the law. You're not supposed to want to take up a sword and run someone's through. Um, he presented to them an even harder law to uphold on our own. Um, so let's read Matthew 22, 36 to 40. We learn a little bit about that. Jesus gives us kind of a capstone commandment. He, he shows us really, really the key. You don't have to even memorize 10 commandments.
chapter uh, 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So we spend a lot of time in our culture fighting over the Ten Commandments. You know, and I kind of wonder, why are we bothering to post Ten Commandments etched in stone in our courthouses or our schools or other public places when we just demonstrated we can't even uphold them? Why do we fight so hard over that when if we really want to stir the pot, if we really want to create some controversy, let's use the words of Jesus and say, hey, those Ten Commandments, how about let's give you one that's even harder to uphold? Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. Let's say, let's post that that commandment. That's the commandment that anchors all of the other ones. Love the Lord your God with your all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we can live that commandment. I mean, the first set of commandments can probably be etched into hearts of stone. I suppose it might be possible because you can mimic, you can kind of follow the rule of the law on those. But this new one that Jesus gave us, it doesn't work that way. It can only be engraved in hearts of flesh. It can only be put into beating hearts that are powered by the breath of Jesus. That's the only way it will ever work. So Saul and his Pharisees at this point when they're challenging Jesus and then when they're persecuting and pursuing the followers of Jesus have made a literally fatal error. From the first moments Jesus encountered them, he called them vipers and decried their morality. Though they saw themselves as the only true moral followers of the law, Jesus said anyone who would see the kingdom of God had to be more righteous than a Pharisee, which of course to a Pharisee would seem impossible. Well, Saul, I think, felt that fear that mounting concern that this little remnant of the kingdom of God was sitting on the edge of a precipice, that the people sinned, that they ignored even the large, easy parts of the law. But maybe with the Pharisees holding the line, they could turn back the tide just a little bit. But now this new Jewish sect, the followers of the way, as they were known at the time, was winning the hearts of Jews and threatening their position as a powerful sect and threatening this delicate arrangement that they had with Rome. It's very possible that all Jews would be painted with the same brush as this radical sect's behavior. It's possible that Rome could ban the Jewish faith where previously they'd recognized it and permitted it. They could shut down the synagogues, burn their scrolls. What would happen to the Pharisees if it all came crashing down? Well, with their public moral stance, they couldn't very well just slip away into the shadows. They'd have to stand for the Torah and Yahweh against the might of Rome and they'd all die. We don't know how many deaths Saul facilitated in his persecution of the early church, but Acts says that he went about breathing murder for the Jesus followers. So by Jesus' standard, his guilt was compounding at a rapid pace as he enlisted permission from the high priest to chase down the radicals wherever they were, see them executed if possible, and if not, at least see them imprisoned. Well, I think that whole part of the story of Saul has an important lesson for us today. Hosea 6.6 6 says, 
I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Paul, Saul, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Caiaphas, they knew the law, but they did not know the lawgiver. And so they ended up being completely wrong about everything. I want you to show love. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. In John, Jesus tells us that people will know the followers of the way because of how they love each other. Jesus teaches us, Paul teaches us, Peter teaches us in their letters that because we love each other and because we love others, that's how people will know that we are true followers of him. That's how people will know God is true. The law was given to set Israel aside, to demonstrate God's power and provision and his selection of those people. Love in a lot of love is the fulfillment of the law and love accomplishes that purpose today. That love so unnatural, so hard to accomplish without the spirit. That is what sets us aside so that people can see that we're part of that kingdom. We're part of God's kingdom. And that's the thing that can draw people to him. So I think it's a good caution for us today. Um, as someone who's a traditionalist myself, it's very easy. I, I, I like the rule of law and order because I see its benefits and I see, I see the good things that it brings. And I know that if it's practiced properly, that it allows people to experience life more peacefully and together. I know that it's unlikely someone's going to come into my house because there are penalties for it. I know that I can get in my car and drive to work in my community because most people are concerned about getting tickets. And so the, for the most part, they follow the law. <clears throat> so I appreciate the, the, the rights that are codified in the Constitution and in the, in, the, uh, in the amendments. But if we put our faith in a law or a thing that can fade, then... We're, really, we're no different than the Pharisees because if we spend our time – and none of us here have studied the Constitution to the same level that Saul had studied the, the, the law. I'm sure of that. Um, so if I don't even know that as well, how can I put my faith in something I don't truly know? How can I tie myself to something that is going to fall apart, that is going to fade away? So the Pharisees, I think a key part of their mission was – rooted in patriotism for the Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. They wanted to see it restored. They wanted to see it made what God had intended for it to be. And I feel like it's a real caution for us that we've done the same thing over the past hundred years. We've displaced our faith in God with our faith in our country, with our faith in other things, with our faith even in our just our own views of culture and society. When those things will break, I, how can we put our faith in an, or in our allegiance to a nation that will ultimately bow down before Christ and lay the crowns down before him. We must put our faith in knowing God. We have to know him because he will last. He will survive. And no matter how cautious and how careful we are, it's very possible we end up in a place that the Pharisees were, that Saul was, where we are absolutely certain that we are doing the right thing. Saul would later realize 
a stunning reality. Everything that he was doing for God was, in fact, precisely opposite of God's desire. His whole life of study and careful piety produced a wealth of wickedness and death. But as we will study in the next few weeks, God used this tremendous error to accomplish the most amazing revolution of hearts and minds that the world had ever seen. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just gonna continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. 
Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law.